good. Christmas 2016, God took Jim home to heaven after a second stroke. It had been three years, almost to the day, from his first one. That fall, we had watched him slowly give up hope and slide downhill, and we we couldn't figure out why. He was hospitalized a few times until finally the doctor realized that he had had another stroke, and this time it was in his brain stem. Um, And they told us there was nothing more that they could do. So um, we called hospice, and we took Jim back to assisted living, where he lived for another week. And that gave us time to say goodbye. And I'm really grateful for that time. We, we called family and friends to come, and it was precious. Very hard, but very precious. So how can you help when you know death is coming? You can be there. Be there in prayer if you can't be there in person. During that last week, our family and a few of our closest friends were there with us, but there were many more of our church family that were praying for us, and we needed that prayer. Some offered to watch Jim at night so that I could sleep. They were still concerned about the insomnia. And when Jim went home to heaven... Friends and family supported us and helped us as we prepared for his funeral. God's people offered comfort. They reminded us of the hope of eternal life. They helped us with preparations. They brought food to the house. A lot of people did that. And they assisted with all sorts of other things. They thought of practical ways to reach out. Recognize, too, that grief is part of the journey. Americans don't like grief. Americans don't like death. And we want to hurry people through it. We want to cheer people up. And that is not helpful because journey, the journey involves grief. I thought that the grief that I felt over the first three years meant that I wouldn't hurt so bad when God took Jim. But that wasn't the case. Not at all. It surprised me. The grief was very different after his death. Care of Jim had been the focus of my life. It dominated my life for three years. And now he was gone. And there was this big hole. And I had to go through another complete transition. Another complete life transition. It just felt overwhelming again, like all my insides had been scooped out, ripped out, and left this gaping hole. It just felt so obvious to me. I was kind of surprised when people didn't even recognize that it was there. And even now, I stop and cry sometimes. But it's okay to do that because Grief isn't sinful, and grief isn't shameful. It's a gift of expression for the loss of something valuable in a fallen world. 
someday all these tears are going to be wiped away. Maybe God catches them in his bottle because when we're in heaven, there won't be any tears. And we'll need to be reminded of the fellowship of his suffering. It's hard to know what to say to somebody whose losses are that big. But you can offer help, and I've got a few ways that you can offer help to a widow. Like I said in the last session, 800,000 widows each year are added. 700,000 of them are women. 100,000 are men. So we need to know how to reach out in widowhood. First of all, understand her new losses. You think you know her story. Her story just changed again. So let her ask her new set of questions. Let her voice her new set of challenges. She doesn't see how she's ever going to survive. It's like two-thirds of her has been torn off. In marriage, there's her, there's her husband, and there's the marriage that binds it together. Now the marriage and the husband are gone. Two-thirds of her, and it feels like it. Gail Roper wrote, So who am I to be now that there's only me? Now that when people think of me, they don't automatically add and chuck. I used to think I was solidly my own person, very self-sufficient in spirit, with a career and professional friends and a professional reputation. That was true. But I'm realizing I wasn't as independent as I like to think. I was able to feel independent and self-sufficient because I had a wonderful safety net called marriage and a man ready to catch me if I slipped from my perch. Now the safety net is gone and I'm in a free fall. It's a long way down. You can help her by calling her. Don't forget her. Recall memories that you have of her husband. Share her tears. Weep with those who weep, ladies. Don't be afraid to do that. You can bring a meal. Sit with her in church. Engage her in conversation. But you can't make her pain go away. That's not going to go away. Recognize that she feels alone and she feels out of place. Crowds were once so fulfilling and energizing to me, but now they seem to mock my pain by their oblivion to it. For the two years of my widowhood, this was a really big hurdle for me, and I still have trouble overcoming that one. I still feel fragile and vulnerable in a group. 
I know now how quickly and how completely life can change. And God lets that happen to his children today, just the way he did with Job. I'm less presumptive that he's going to handle my life like I think he will. I feel much more out of place in this world. And maybe that's good. You can help, again, by sitting with her in church. Don't wait for her to ask you. Go shopping with her. Include her in events. Let her know she's doing well. She won't feel like she is. But let her know. I appreciate that you got up this morning and you got dressed and you came. That took more courage than you can imagine. Reminder that when she's weak, she's strong. Recognize, too, that grief is unpredictable and very hard, and there's no way to go around it. It often takes me by surprise, and it, it knocks me off my feet unexpectedly. I remember being in Menards, <laughs> just shopping at Menards, and uh, got to the back of the store, and um, Rod Stewart was on the radio. I can't remember the name of the song now. Have I told you lately that I love you? I had to go find a spot. Cry for a while. Or passing the Valentine's Day cards, knowing I'm not getting any more. The second year of widowhood, ladies, is oftentimes harder than the first one. And I don't think people know that. The milestones and the adjustments of the first year are agonizing. They're very hard. I don't minimize that at all. It's very difficult. Very difficult. But once those milestones and adjustments are behind her, she faces the emptiness and extreme loneliness. It, it can feel suffocating. The loneliness can feel suffocating. Even when you stay busy. And you know it's for the long haul. For many widows, deep, deep grief can last for five years, and for some, longer than that. It takes as long as it takes. You can't hurry it. The pain never really goes away, but it becomes easier to bear as time goes on. You can help by weeping with her and resisting the urge to be impatient with how long it's taking. Everybody's different. But when you see self-pity or self-absorption or despair, turn her eyes gently to the goodness of God. Help her not to get lost in her emotions. She does have to tell her emotions who God is. Share memories and reach out to her family. Boy, families are complicated. She may want to meaningfully remember the past and share that with her family and their grief, but words will often fail her at times where she wants to say something. She knows it's important to say. People grieve in different ways, and so families frequently have conflict and real difficulty expressing themselves to one another. 
And still, she should love them as best she can, be patient, and trust that God is ministering to their souls where she can't. Help her to express her love by going through pictures with her and talking about her loved ones, praying with her for them, encouraging her not to give up as she tries to love them well. Help her to find her way to know where she fits. On the radio last year, I heard a comedian say, I had always thought that widows were spiders and old women, and now I am one. It wasn't funny to me either. You know what? I didn't choose to be a widow. I don't like that role. I don't want to be a widow. Two-thirds of me is missing. The average widow lose 75% of her friends and 45% of her income. So, who does God want me to be now? And how can I get to that place? I'm his child, but now what does that mean? In an everyday setting, what is that? Help her to rethink how she can do what God has gifted her to do. And she probably has recognized at some point in her life what gifts the Holy Spirit has given to her. Help her to see where she can use those gifts now and do what she loves to do again in a new context, a new normal. Include her in activities that she has enjoyed in the past and suggest opportunities to build new relationships and to do some meaningful work. As you try to encourage her to rethink, avoid silver lining statements. Mitchell Schultz wrote, I reprimanded a friend who told me after my son Travis died that I should find some comfort in knowing that others had come to Christ through his death. I tried to find comfort in this, but as hard as I tried, it would not come. The only person who has a right to point out silver linings is the person who's done the suffering. Instead, love them. Put your arms around them. Cry with them. Enter into their brokenness. Share their pain. Assure them of hope that their loss does not mean the end. But please, offer no explanations. When you perceive that the time is right, you can read Philippians, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, 3 through 9 with her and talk to her about her identity in Jesus Christ. God says in that passage that she is chosen, adopted, loved, accepted, forgiven, and given a purpose. From Isaiah 54, I learned to cherish his presence as my true husband and my redeemer the lover of my soul, and the light of life. I had to rehearse those things. I reminded myself of that truth every day. A widow friend of mine told me that she greets God whenever she enters her empty house. I think that's a great idea. Slowly, God has been deepening and restoring my sense of identity and purpose, coupled with a heightened sense of a sensitivity to the pain of other people. I didn't have that so much before. He's building a sense of humble compassion in me 
a sense of love and urgency. It intersects the rawness inside me, and it gives it meaning. Encourage her with the promises of God. So we're going to look at the remaining promises of Psalm 91, verses 15 and 16. So we've seen so far that God promises to rescue those who love him, to protect those who trust in his name, and to answer those who call upon him. In verses 15 and 16, God goes on to say, I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. So God promises to be with us in our trial. This promise flows out of God's love and his care for the sufferer. One of the hardest parts of my trial was the silence of God. If I had to name one thing that was the hardest, that was the hardest. I couldn't see him or hear him resonating in my soul like I had in the past, and it terrified me. It felt like he was absent when I needed him the most. Job and David expressed that emotion too. But remember that we have to inform our feelings, that feeling of abandonment. We have to tell it the truth rather than letting those emotions control us. In the movie Facing the Giants, when one of the characters said she couldn't see God in her suffering, her friend replied, the teacher is always silent during the test. I like that. I think that's true. So teach that little proverb to your friend. The teacher is always silent during the test. Doesn't mean he's not there. Ask her to recall some times when God answered her prayers or those of of others, especially if he made her wait before he answered. Point out Bible people who had to wait, people like Sarah and Abigail and Joseph. I love Joseph. Remember that music is especially important during suffering. Encourage her to reinforce truth by listening to the gospel listening to songs and hymns that remind her of God's promises and his answers to prayer. Text her the links to good music. She may not be able to look something up, but you can, and text her those links. Remember that Christ's very name is Emmanuel. That means God with us. Speak that truth. Speak it to God. I know that you're here, even though I can't see you. Because you say you are. I know it. It takes a lot of effort to believe it, but fight that spiritual battle. It's worth fighting. Speaking the truth is important because it remains true even when our feelings are screaming otherwise. Encourage her to memorize Armand Tiff's amplified translation of Hebrews 13.5. That's found in this little booklet. It's called The Most Encouraging Promise in the Bible. Really worth having. He says, this is his amplified translation, I will never, no, not ever, no, never leave you behind, abandon you, desert you, give up on you, let go of you, leave you helpless, let you down, nor shall I ever relax my hold on you. He will hold me fast. And then he goes on, behind this promise is the all-powerful, 
all-knowing, ever-present God. When you say, I don't have the strength to go on, remember the all-powerful God is with you. When you sigh, I'm so lonely, remember this, the everywhere-present God is with you. When you cry out, I don't know what to do, remember this, the all-knowing God is with you. Next, Psalm 91.15 promises that God will rescue and honor her. A widow almost, uh, 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 often faces a horrible sense of a, abandonment and a debilitating loneliness. I, I thought I knew what loneliness was, but I didn't until I was a widow. In verse 15, God repeats his promise to rescue her. And because rescue and deliverance may be in this world or the next, we have to remember that it will come on his timetable, whatever is best for his glory and for her, her greater good. God also promises to honor her, and this is a big deal for a woman who is suddenly in a role that is not well-respected in our society. I had to deal with dishonest businessmen who overcharged me for their work and then laughed at me or came on to me. Widows have to live with being overlooked or treated as non-persons, being misunderstood or minimized or dismissed altogether. It's painful when no one talks about your husband after he dies. Uh, loneliness can be suffocating. One woman told me that her doctors consider her medical needs less important because she's aging. A widow no longer has a husband at home to reassure her that she's cherished or to stand up for her. She enters her empty house knowing that no one knew she left and nobody cared when she came home. But God sees all of that, and he holds the widow in honor as she patiently endures. He values her godliness with contentment as great gain, and her meek and quiet spirit he calls of great price. Her good fight of faith brings him glory and achieves the ultimate purpose for every person, and that is to glorify God. And God honors her for that. Finally, in verse 16, God promises to reward her with long life. And of course, eternal life is pretty long. And to give her his salvation. Now here, the Hebrew word for salvation means deliverance, especially from sin and oppression. So, three times in this short psalm, we are promised to be rescued. Don't be afraid to tell her then with assurance that this trial is not going to last forever and that she has an eternal reward waiting for her as a child of God. Now, she may tell you one of two things. She may say, I've blown it so many times that there's no way God could ever reward me or honor me. In other words, Christ's sacrifice isn't enough for me. I have to measure up somehow, and I haven't, and so there's no hope. Do you recognize the performance treadmill in that statement? Or she may accuse God of being unjust. I've lived for God, I've given him my whole life, so I don't deserve this kind of treatment. In other words, God, you're not fair. 
and I have a right to judge you. Both of these statements are wrong at their core because they focus on how bad or how good I am as a basis for how God treats me. Scripture teaches that Christ is the only one that has any merit. I don't have any. None of us measures up. We're all unclean. We can't earn anything good because he says even our righteousness righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And again, the gospel is the key. God answers both self-condemnation and self-reliance with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ himself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then Titus 3, 5 goes on to say, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, our job as believers then is to simply seek to know and to reflect him in our imperfect, bumbling frail way, believing that he cares for us for some inconceivable reason. I'll never figure it out. I'm just glad he does. His promises are for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? One final word now about the sufficiency of the gospel. Ladies, the full force of our punishment fell on Christ. Every last drop of God's wrath was poured on him, and he completely atoned for it. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. So even though we are all sinners, God doesn't punish his children for sinning. Warts and all, We're entirely covered by Christ's forgiveness and grace so that we're free to follow him. Now, Romans 6 would say that that doesn't mean we have an open book to go ahead and sin, right? But Christ is our advocate so that we have nothing to fear when we fail. We can draw near to God in relationship because he's our loving father, knowing that he'll teach us something incredibly valuable through our experiences, even while we're having trouble handling them. Because God is faithful to complete the good work he began in us. He's good. Rescue and reward lie ahead for God's children. So in the storms of your life, make God the place where your mind and your spirit dwell. Sometimes you must fight to focus there because inside and all around you, this battle rages, and it is. There's a reality of a spiritual warfare going on. At times, you're going to be distracted and distressed, bone-weary and scared out of your mind. But even then, abide in Christ, and he's going to produce much fruit in his good time when we abide in him. 1 Peter 5.10 But may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, 
will himself perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So in summary, I close our weekend together with a couple of thoughts. First, beginning with a list of ways you can help people during long-term suffering. I have this list in your notes, and I'm just going to go through it quickly here. You can't fix what's broken. I know we're well-meaning. We like to do things. We like to see things getting done. We can't fix it. And you know what? It's not our job. You have a more eternal purpose of ministering the gospel. And we can do that in very practical ways. And as we do, we lavish encouragement and truth as we walk alongside with the one another's, as we weep together, we talk about Christ's faithfulness, and we point to his presence and the fellowship of his suffering. Acknowledge her pain without offering platitudes, like, it's going to be okay. Instead, help her learn to walk with God and live by faith in this fallen world where life is most certainly not okay. Offer meals and rides, but offer them with an eternal purpose. They're opportunities to shine his light, to talk about her questions, to talk about her challenges, and to share his living water with her. Don't be afraid of her tears. Don't try to cheer her up, but respect her grief by weeping with her. Be careful, though, not to indulge self-pity, but express sorrow the way Christ did. If she needs more help than you can provide and you realize that, help her to find some biblical counsel. Continue to be there when everybody else has gone home. Now, there's a balance here because you shouldn't try to be her savior, take Christ's place. She does need space to deepen her relationship with Christ, but you, know, you need to have a balance there where you're there when she really does need a person there. Or you can arrange for someone else to be there too. Listen to her. Listen well. Let her ask her hard questions without scolding her. In fact, you should be glad she's asking you these things because now you know where the struggle lies. So try to discern if she doubts God's love or his sovereignty, and maybe she doubts both, and what she thinks she needs most and where she thinks she's going to find it. Where is she looking for it? Deepen her faith by going with her to the scriptures to see what God has to say. He usually answers the question, why, with reasons to trust his character. He did that with Job a lot. He seldom, if ever, provides explanations. And I think that's one of the things that we can exhort our friends to do, is, is to accept the fact that he's God and he doesn't have to give us an explanation. Remember that she's on mental overload, and she probably can't handle much conversation or even a book. I had a, a, one well-meaning woman. She, bless her heart, she must have spent hours on letters she would send me, like four or five, six, seven-page letters. <sighs> Don't do that. 
I mean, she meant well. I know she meant well, but I just couldn't, couldn't deal with them. Give her a verse, a verse, or maybe two verses to cling to, and then talk about them. Talk together about God's faithfulness. Speak hope into her life. She desperately needs to know there's hope this side of heaven. I think a lot of people know that there's eternal life when you die, but is there hope this side of heaven? Help her to see there is. There are beautiful things here. Share gospel-rich music. Sovereign Grace has a song, In the Valley. If you haven't heard that one, you need to listen to it. YouTube it and listen to it. Great hymns like Be Still My Soul. Um, I had the lyrics to Be Still My Soul on my desk. So when I was working, I would look at it and, and on the mirror in my bathroom. It, it was a life-saving, I think, uh, at least to me. Show her that God can still use her. She's not irrelevant. She's not ruined. She's not used up. He loves her, and he has a purpose for her life. I love Peter. <laughs> Peter's my encourager because he blew it so many times. <laughs> and what did Jesus do? He didn't scold him. I love Peter. Jesus came and met him where he was. He had gone back to his fishing boat. Oh, what a failure I am. Look at me. I, I got it all wrong. And I denied my Lord. I should just give it up and go back to my fishing boat. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, no. Oh, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. I love you. Go and feed my sheep. And the third time, I think he got it. <laughs> I love Peter. <laughs> he didn't get it the first time either. <laughs> Point out that Christ's suffering, just like John's, just like Job's, was evidence of God's favor, not his disapproval. She's been deepened rather than damaged. God is doing something incredibly beautiful and deep in her. Help her to reach out to others now as she grows so she won't become self-absorbed or isolated. You know, the world has suddenly become dangerous, and it just feels safe to go in your house and curl up in a corner and be isolated. It's not safe. That's more dangerous than being out there. Help her to see that and to reach out to others. God has given her her story. He's given me my story. He's given you your story to show others who he is and to beckon them to come to him too because he's the only place where there's hope. Take someone with you as you serve. Teach them how to reach out. This job of soul care is something we all need and something Titus 2 says we all should be doing. So, lady, ladies, God continues my journey. <laughs> I'm starting out on my fifth segment of my journey. I'm a wife again. In November 2018, I married a wonderful Christian widower. And we have begun yet another complete life transition. 
I moved again <laughs> to a new city, new community, new church, new family, new marriage, new everything. It's full of challenges and full of changes that continue to throw us upon the mercy of our Savior. He is so good. Personally, I have grown in the knowledge that God loves me. I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but I want to talk to you. This is as I close. Because God gave me some closure in that area. Um, I would stand in the knowledge that God loves me because I know what his word says. His word says that he loves me. But I've had to fight to believe it because the circumstances around me were screaming otherwise. And I, I had to fight really hard to dislodge the lie that he disapproves of me, that he's kicked me to the side. It's been a really fierce battle, to tell you the truth. And yet, last January, um, I had been married for three months. Six years after Jim's stroke, God resolved that spiritual battle with, for me by giving me a passage. And I found in talking to other women that he often does that. He gives you a passage that just resonates with you. Now, I'm going to share the one that resonates with me, but the one that resonates with you will probably be different than this one. Luke 22 31 and 32. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen my brethren. Three life-changing promises for me in that verse. The first one is, it wasn't my fault. Satan asked for me to sift me like wheat. It wasn't my fault. Second promise, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. It wasn't up to me. I did suffer toward God, but the reason my faith didn't fail is because Jesus was praying for me. Jesus is my strength. His faithfulness is the reason why I stand here today, not my faithfulness. I was a puddle on the floor way too often. And when you have returned to me, strengthen my brethren. Peter had gone back to his fishing boat, and Jesus brought him to the shore and said, I'm not done. I'm not done. And I'm standing here today because he's not done with me either. And you dear hearts, you dear souls, he's not done with you. You're here and so is he. And his word is true for you too. His love is real. He is a powerful God who makes it all work together for good for those who love him. So this weekend, I share my story, so not so you'll admire me or so that you'll feel sorry for me, 
but to strengthen you and to encourage you to reach out with your story. See the enormous role of the local church in this journey through suffering. God's grace is our hope. He is our hope for the future. That's always been the case, but I see it so much more clearly now. Our all-sufficient God is here. He's with me. He's with you. He's strengthening me, and he's helping me. He's giving me a, a depth of understanding and compassion and purpose that was not there before. He continues to teach me every day. In fact, just two days ago, I was made aware of George Herbert's poem, Love Number 3. George Herbert wrote this poem 400 years ago. But it beautifully expresses how God's love understands the battle and makes up for my unworthiness and my lack of faith. So I'm going to close with this poem. Please close your eyes and hear what love has to say. Love bade me welcome Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I? The unkind, ungrateful? Oh, my dear, I cannot look at thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made your eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And so I did sit and eat. Thank you, Lord, for your love. You work all things together for good to those who love you and are called to fellowship in your suffering so that we can know you and grow into your beautiful image. What a wonderful plan you have. Thank you. May each of us here today draw upon you for the courage and the love to reach out to those like Job who are deeply suffering. And may we bring others with us to teach them the vital importance of the local church, to minister life-giving hope in crisis, in wilderness, in desert nights, and in widowhood. Thank you that your gospel lights the way and quenches our thirst with your living waters on this our journey of faith. In thy name we pray. Amen. Before um, our singers come again, I'd like to point out some resources. In the back of your book, you'll see there's a list of helpful resources. I just want to point out a few of those that are my favorites. Um, Everything on this list I have read, and they're all great resources. 
And there are others that are out on the resource table that I would also recommend that you read. But some in particular, um, first of all, under caregiving, the Legacy Caregiver Services Second Edition Caregiver Handbook, uh, there may be a third edition now, was very, very helpful to me. It is a secular resource, but it's really practical. And those of you that are caregivers, especially of a husband, will find this would really be helpful to you. Also under Gospel Grace, Ruthie Delk's book, Craving Grace, um, is a, a really good way. Uh, she gives an illustration, a figure eight illustration, and then she expands on that in her book that helps us to see that which way we go really impacts our lives and that, that grace provides the answers for us. Um, I've, I found it to be a really helpful tool, and you probably will too. I'd also recommend New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. It is uh, 365 daily devotionals, and he has just a way of expressing himself that is so deep and profound and helpful. Um, he seems to get it, and he points out um, truth so, so well. Uh, I, we had mentioned the book, Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I think everybody should own this book and read it. Um, because all of us do have sorrows in our lives, and we need to learn to lament God's way. Uh, Mitch Schultz's book, Did I Say the Right Thing?, really helps for those who are trying to minister to someone who's in deep sorrow, in grief. Uh, very practical book. And then Gail Roper's book, A Widow's Journey, I found of all the books I read after I was a widow, this was the one that helped me the most. Because she, is, she just gives you a few paragraphs a day um, describing the journey and the difficulties in it, and then she gives you a verse that speaks directly to that difficulty. So you can see that God is really with you. It, it, it was a very profound book. And Trials and Suffering, um, I found the Beyond Suffering Bible to be helpful. I read through that in a year. Um, five chapters a day, five days a week will get you through the Bible in a year. And this was helpful to me because it is a commentary too. So there's scripture, you read the scriptures, you read the Bible, but then in the margins there's commentary from Johnny and, and friends. Johnny Erickson Tata is a quadriplegic, has a wonderful ministry to the disabled, and she has a very good um, theology of suffering, which she talks about throughout that Bible in a commentary. Again, Armin Tiff's book, The Most Encouraging Promise in the Bible. Um, I have written a booklet called Help, I Feel Ashamed, which helps you to know the different kinds of shame, but also the difference between shame and humility. Um, Jerry Bridges' book on trusting God even when life hurts is a classic uh, again, one that should be in everybody's library, and uh, it makes a wonderful Bible study when you use the study guide with it especially. Paul Tauges is going to be coming here next month. No, March. In March. Yeah, that is next month. It's February 1st, isn't it? Okay. Um, he's just released a book called Anxiety, Finding God's Peace, which I just finished yesterday, and it is a wonderful resource, a 31-day devotional. On anxiety that I would encourage you to read as well. Okay, we're ready for our music. <laughs>